I got to set up that record button. Um, and then I have. Uh, all right. So these were some of the Assyrian gods. And, and I know I just got the recording started. My apologize. So we've lost about 10 minutes or so there. And uh, but I went and looked up these these Assyrian gods because I'm trying to make the connection and trying to help us see these biblical records, not as just some ancient records, but make it applicable to today and trying to get our heads around these. You know, we have the same weather gods. We have these same gods of war. We have these same gods uh, here in America, in Europe and so forth. We just don't understand how it is that we're uh, given obedience to them and obeisance, I should say. Um, back to the deities then, Ishtar was the goddess of love and war, the patroness of Nineveh. Remember when uh, uh, um, uh, uh, Jonah refused to go to Nineveh was because he, he knew the, the filthiness of Nineveh. And yet, God gave them opportunity to repent. And so just another one of these, these things that um, was going on that we would do well to recognize the application to, to today as well. Um, Anasas was a god of medicine. How about that one? Do we have our gods of medicine? Um, Nisroch was the god was the god of agriculture do we not have our own gods of agriculture or our own god of agriculture so i'm trying to help us recognize all these alphabet soup agencies that we have and you know secretary of agriculture secretary of war secretary of this secretary of that secretary we might as well call them gods you know, Secretary of of Health and Human Services. Um, you know, what is that? A goddess of love. <laughs> Does is it just me, or am I way out in left field with this? I, I I really truly believe these are our modern applications of these gods and and deities that we begin to recognize just right here in these first few verses of chapter 10, verse 7 through 11 in Isaiah, this is what's actually going on. The king of Assyria thinks that he does the destruction and of these kingdoms and these cities by his own power and for the gods that Assyria worships. And as I say, without getting into an exhaustive history of Eastern gods, suffice it to be a brief reminder that Assyria was filled with these gods and deities. And as I look through the list of them, I find them very similar to what we have in America. And people will say, well, we don't worship a secretary of state or a secretary of war or a secretary of defense. Oh, really? If they say we need to go to war, 
and they tell this to a hundred of uh, uh, 435 legislators in Congress, and they say, "Yep, sure enough, boy, the Secretary of War has laid out a good case. We need to go to war." Then we go to war, don't we? Yep. And so, are we not? Are we not following the God of War? And who is that God? I find these things just incredibly applicable. And I really think that we would do well if we could recognize it as this and see it this way. But but we literally don't. And so when you when you see what's going on with these gods of Assyria and Babylonia that were, as I say, assimilated into the ancient system of Mesopotamian gods, um, look at it and analyze it in terms of our Western nations and peoples. Even those calling themselves Jews today believe and profess themselves as the gods of heaven. And their intention is is for all to bow down and serve them. So they are as much as the Assyrian god Ashur, which is the national god or the god of war, that is their national god of Israel because they think that they are God. They are God's instrument and claim that they have the mantle, the title of God's chosen people, you know, exclusively. And so Europe and America slowly have adopted, and by manifestation, we worship these same gods. They have their symbols. They have their agencies. They have their anachronisms, um, agencies of the environment. What did we have here of... Um, uh, uh, Ma was the earth goddess. We have an earth goddess or an earth agency. And what what is striking about all of this and all of these social systems and so forth, more and more power is concentrated in these godless agencies as more oppression is put upon the people. And Yahweh, God of Israel, has seen all of this contrary to his commands at Deuteronomy 13, 1 to 6. Let's turn back there for a little bit. Um, Deuteronomy 13 and 1 through 6. If there arise among you a prophet or a dreamer of dreams and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or wonder come to pass, wherever he spake unto thee, saying, Let us go after other gods which thou hast not known and let us serve them <clears throat> thou shalt not hearken unto the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams for the lord yahweh your god proves you to know whether you love yahweh your god with all your heart and with all your soul you shall walk after yahweh your god and fear him and keep his commandments and obey his voice and you shall serve him and cleave unto him and that prophet or dreamer of dreams that shall be shall be put to death because he has spoken to turn you away from yahweh your god which brought you out of the land of egypt and redeemed you out of the house of bondage 
to thrust thee out of the way which Yahweh thy God commanded thee to walk in, so shall thou put evil away in the midst of thee. I, you know, and what has it resulted in? It culminates in his wrath. Isaiah is showing us all of this. But the Assyrian king sings it all as his power and might. And remember what we said in part six, Israel's enemies are never, ever victorious over her for their righteousness, but only in righteousness is Israel victorious over her and the enemies of God. That's the only reason that we are victorious and that we have to rejoice in. So here you already have Isaiah 10, 7 to 11, verse 12, wherefore it shall come to pass that when Yahweh has performed his whole work upon Mount Zion and Jerusalem, I'll punish the fruit of the stout heart of the king of Assyria and the glory of his high looks. For he says, by the strength of my hand, I have done it, and by my wisdom, for I am prudent, and I have removed the bounds of the people, and have robbed their treasures, and I have put down the inhabitants like a valiant man, and my hand has found as a nest the riches of the people, and as one gathers eggs that are left, have I gathered all the earth, and there was none that moved the wing, or opened the mouth, or peeped. Yet once again, as I mentioned, Asher is referred to as their king, their king of kings. In fact, you go to Ezekiel 26, verse 7, and that's what you'll find there. And so thus, you see the Assyrian king here, he calls his generals kings. And so Assyria thus boasts of taking Samaria, and rhetorically he asks, shall he not also take Jerusalem? And he's actually saying, look, um, there were more gods in, in these other lands than there even was in, in the land of Jerusalem. But yet we have in 13 and 14, once again, the promise, or in 12, um, the promise that he's going to punish the king of Assyria by Yahweh's hand. And essentially, they they continue. Um, maybe I should go ahead and read 14 and 15, uh, or 14 I did. When he says here in this verse, um, I gathered all the earth and there was none. Uh, let's see. Wait a minute. I, I want to, where's that nest? There it is. First part, first part of 14. And my hand has found as a nest, the riches of the people here. He's actually taken in all of these communities and is boasting that he has gathered up all the riches, like finding the nest where the eggs would be. And you look at all of these European countries, what has transpired for us? Has not a hand found us 
and the riches of the people as a nest amongst us? And have they not come in and actually plundered it from us? I mean, I don't know what else you call $30 trillion in debt, but a plundering. <laughs> and so the wicked form and craft their plans and they devise outcomes at the expense of the simple citizenry. And God is not mocked. The word spoken of regarding the people called by his name, they prevail through his spiritual gifts. And this king of Assyria literally placed Yahweh, the God of Jacob Israel, in the same category of the idols of other cities and nations that he besieged and conquered. You can see it as he boasts, even though those kingdoms and cities, he says, their idols were more than those of Samaria and Jerusalem. So in this boast is Assyria's own sin exposed. His exaltation of Assyria's gods and he as actually king over Yahweh himself. And that's what's being conveyed here. And that's why God's justice and judgment upon the wicked. And even though he's using the king of Assyria for carrying out the plan of judgment upon Judah and Ephraim Israel, it is completely justified because the boast is clear that he's made himself above God. And so, as I say in verse 15, let's read uh, 15 yet. Shall the axe boast itself against him that hews therewith? Or shall the saw magnify itself against him that shakes it? Or moves it back and forth as if the rod should shake itself against them that lift it up or as if the staff should lift up itself as if it were not even a piece of wood. That's the same thing you were referring to last week, Russell, you know, going ahead a little bit, getting into chapter 10 was, you know, <clears throat> that axe does not swing itself and a staff is there for the purpose of supporting you and lifting you up. <clears throat> and so in verse 15, the prophet rhetorically asks, does the saw move itself or does an axe wield itself? To try to get the mind to understand how are these things happening and to recognize it. And this is where our people is at. They do not recognize the hand that's against them and I know some would say, well, we do. We certainly know that something's wrong. We certainly see that our government is corrupt. But I see that God used a corrupt Assyria to provide judgment on his people. And we see this corruption and we should likewise recognize it as judgment upon the nation. That's the lesson in the prophets. 
you know, one of the many lessons. And so it is that God is the one who's the active force. The conspirators are described by Isaiah as political, militaristic, idolatrous. Turn over to 16. Therefore shall Yahweh, Lord of hosts, send among his fat ones leanness, and under his glory he shall kindle a burning like the burning of a fire. And the light of Israel shall be for a fire, and his holy one for a flame. And it shall burn and devour his thorns and briars in one day, and shall consume the glory of his forest and of his fruitful field, both soul and body, and they shall be as when a standard bearer faints. And the rest of the trees of the, his forest shall be few, that a child may write them. All right, so we might be saying, okay, what exactly is all this meaning? Well, as I indicated, if Isaiah is describing the conspirators as those political, militaristic, idolatrous, didn't Canaanites and Philistines, Edomites, Amalekites, and others go out of existence? Well, if not, then they're yet with us today. Minorities exercising dominion authority in the same domineering, aggressive, calculating ways that they did in ages past. Any country or people which permits them status will witness their rise to power and corrupting, leavening influence and plundering of the nest of the riches of the people. Turn with me to 2 Kings chapter 18, because this is where the historical record is, uh, is recorded also of much of what we're reading in the account and prophecy of Isaiah, 2 Kings 18. This is where Assyria, actually, maybe we should start at 17. And it says in 17 that, um, um, and the king of Assyria sent Tartan and Rabsaras and Rabshakeh from Lachish to King Hezekiah with a great host against Jerusalem. And they went up and came to Jerusalem. And when they were come up, they came and stood by the conduit of the upper pool, which is in the highway of the fuller's field. And when they had called to the king, there came out to them Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, which was over the household, and uh, Shebna, the scribe, and Joah, the sign of Asaph, the son of Asaph, the recorder. And Rebshekah said unto them, speaking out of Hezekiah, thus says the great king, the king of Assyria. What confidence is this wherein thou trusts? Thou say, but they are but vain words. I have counsel and strength for the war. Now on whom dost thou trust that thou rebels against me? Now behold, thou trusts upon the staff of his bruised reed, of this bruised reed, and upon Egypt, on which if a man leans, it will go into his hand and pierce it. So is Pharaoh, king of Egypt, unto all that trust on him. But if you say unto me, we trust in Yahweh our God, is not that he whose high places and whose altars 
Hezekiah has taken away and has said to Judah and Jerusalem, you shall worship before this altar in Jerusalem. So here's the the historical account, as I say, of what's going on. Hezekiah and now King Shalmaneser, king of Assyria, has taken away captive of Israel from Samaria. But Assyria moves now to Judah. So this is the next stage, you see. And he's now moving on to, you know, taking Judah. So he's coming to Judah and taunting Judah, Judah and then asking him, why are you, you know, putting your faith and trust in Egypt? And again, telling the citizenry, hey, this is this guy who took down your altars and so forth. And wasn't this the altars of your God? See, he doesn't know much about the inner workings of what Hezekiah was doing in trying to bring about reforms to almost too little too late. But so these same enemies in um, of God in America um, and Europe, they took our righteous call and said, your leaders lie. Your God wants you to be inclusive. And thus your ways, that is the ways of God, are unjust. So don't deceive yourselves into trusting in this false worldview that that your God has given you a great commission. See, that's what the enemies of God in America and, and Europe have done. We've, we've gone through 19 to 22. Now I want to pick it up. Um, we'll drop down to 31 through 37. Hearken not to Hezekiah, he says, for thus says king of Assyria, make an agreement with me. Buy a present and come out to me. And then you'll eat every man his own vine and every one of his own fig tree. And drink you every one of the waters of his cistern. We all recognize what this government does in telling us these very things. Look, I'm going to give you liberty and freedom. Just trust in me. Come my way. Everyone's going to have their own vine. Everyone's going to have his own fig tree. You're going to drink of you know sweet waters of the cistern. But in verse 32, he says, until I come and take you away to a land like your own land, a land of corn and wine, a land of bread and vineyards. But so what's wrong with our land right here? So they say, well, you're not going to move from the land. So we're just going to inundate your land with the locusts. Continuing in 32, a land of olive and of honey that you may live and not die and hearken not unto Hezekiah when he persuades you, saying, Yahweh will deliver us. <laughs> Have any of the gods of the nations delivered at all his land out of the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of Sepharvim and Hana and Iba? Have they, <clears throat> have they delivered Samaria out of my hand? Who are they among all the gods of the countries that have delivered their country out of my hand? That Yahweh should deliver Jerusalem out of my hand. But the people held their peace and answered him not a word. For the king's commandment was, that is the king Hezekiah, his commandment was, answer him not a word. 
Then came Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, and was over the household, and Shebna the scribe, Joah the son of the Asaph the recorder, to Hezekiah. They rent their clothes and told him the words of Rabshakeh. There's the historical record. I see all of that very synonymous with what we hear out of our government and their agencies day in and day out. Uh, can I say something? Do you have any plans of getting in Isaiah 52 at all? No, we're not in 52 yet. Did you did you ask if I if I have gone there yet, John? If you have plans. Oh yeah, about fifty weeks yeah. from now. Yeah. <laughs> no, about forty eight weeks or forty six weeks from now. <laughs> but yeah, you can defer there. I. I I'm not, I think I see that he's been having some difficulties. Melissa has been communicating on chat a little bit with him, but um, uh, it, it appears. Can you hear me? He, yeah, there you go. There you go. Yeah, my, my internet's not working here. Yeah, I'm getting into at all. Yeah, in about 46 weeks. Why don't you read Isaiah? I have 52, one, three, kind of what you're talking about. Yeah, and that is true. Exactly what John says. You'll find, actually, as we get into the later chapters of Isaiah, basically from 46 to 66, we're going to have a somewhat of a recapitulation of many of the things in which we'll have already gone over in these, in these uh, first chapters. Uh, 52, go ahead, John. Hold on a second. Let me hold on. Well, uh, I can go to it if you if you need me to. Do you have a specific verse? No, Isaiah 52, 1 through 12, the whole thing, just 1 through right. 12, because that, that ties directly into what we're talking about with Assyria and Egypt. Solution to well. yeah, 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 and 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 that might be the way we reference it too. It's uh, fifty-two one through twelve. Awake, awake! Put on your strength, O Zion. Put on your beautiful garments, O Jerusalem. And again, that's a direct call to his people. Zion is his people. Jerusalem is his people. Zion is greater Israel. Jerusalem, that of the house of Judah. Shake yourself the from the dust. Arise, sit down, O Jerusalem. Loose thyself from the bands of the neck, O captive daughter of Zion. For thus says Yahweh, I've, you've sold yourself for nothing. You shall be redeemed without money. For thus says Yahweh, my people went down aforetime into Egypt to sojourn there, and the Assyrian oppressed them without cause. Now, therefore, what have I here, says Yahweh, that my people is taken away for naught, that they rule over that they that rule over them make to howl, says Yahweh, and my name continually every day is blasphemed. 
Therefore, my people shall know my name. Therefore, they shall know in that day I am he that does speak. Behold, it is I. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him that brings good tidings, that publishes peace, that brings good tidings of good, tidings of good, that publish salvation, that says unto Zion, thy God reigns. Thy watchmen shall lift up the voice, with the voice together they shall sing, for they shall see eye to eye when Yahweh shall bring again Zion. Break forth into joy, sing together, you waste places of Jerusalem, for Yahweh has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. Yahweh has made bare his holy arm in the eye of all nations, and all the ends of the earth shall see salvation of our God. Depart ye, depart ye, go you out from thence, touch not unclean thing, but go out in the midst of her. Be ye clean that you bear vessels of Yahweh, for you shall not go out with haste, nor go by flight, for Yahweh will go before you, and the God of Israel will be your rearward. And in fact, when you're in Isaiah chapter 11 and we have this branch of jesse we all know i know those of us who fellowship here regularly are understanding this branch of jesse and understand what that is but you know we're not in uh quite to 11 yet let me continue in chapter 10 briefly um on as i said going back to second kings kind of helps you to reestablish what was going on in the historical timeline, if you will, in the historical record. And then I wanted to continue because in, um, uh, let's see, after they rent their coat, their, their, their um, clothes, um, Uh, in chapter 19, well, Hezekiah asks for counsel, and then Hezekiah prays, and the prayer is actually answered, and, and I think you'll find that in Joel, too. I didn't make a note of that, but it's in Joel. Um, yeah, I did. Joel chapter 3, verse 11. Um he was also praying for God's mighty ones to come down. Well, actually what happened is in 1935, um, um, and it came to pass that night that the angel of Yahweh went out and smote in the camp of the Assyrians, a hundred four score and 5,000, 185,000 in, in the camp. So that's just kind of bringing our mind back to when that was happening, this is the day in which Isaiah is actually, you know, speaking is in this time frame, this time period and so forth with these events transpiring with Hezekiah. Because remember, in our earlier chapters, Hezekiah sought the counsel of Isaiah and Isaiah reciprocated with, you know, counsel from Yahweh. And in this situation here, when that prayer went out where Hezekiah asked, God actually intervened and slew 185,000. And so when we're back in chapter 10, verses 16 to 20, um, our glory is in him. It's in 
when he departs from us with his strength, the strength in us dissipates. And the common citizen is as thorns and briars. And the leaders, as the glory of his forest, is what we see here in in the remaining verses of, of chapter 10 of Isaiah. Let me uh, go back to um, number 20. It shall come to pass in that day that the remnant of Israel and such as are escaped of the house of Jacob shall no more again stay upon him that smote them. Remember, it, they had sought out refuge with Assyria, but shall stay upon the Holy One of Israel, Yahweh, the Holy One of Israel in truth. The remnant shall return, even the remnant of Jacob, unto the mighty God. And so we have prophecy here that if we just do this, he'll return to us. And even though there's a promise there in these verses that he is going to return to them, uh, we, our leaders and so forth, are supposed to be the glory of his forest. But yet, we as the citizen, are as the thorns and briars, the leaders are the forest, and we're all consumed in his wrath. And the scene here that Isaiah is sharing, it's depicted as when a, a standard bearer, it says, faints, when there's no one there that knows what to do. And this is where we're at. We're in this situation where we seem relatively helpless and no one knowing what to do. And he's saying that those trees or those leaders will be as uh, as such a few number that they would be able to be counted by a child. Um, yeah, here he says, and shall consume the glory of his forest. The light of Israel, I'm in, I'm in 1017, the light of Israel shall be for a fire and his holy one for flame and it shall burn and devour his thorns and his briars in a day and shall consume the glory of his forest which was the leader of his people and of his fruitful field both soul and body and they shall be as when a standard bearer faints and it's just so important that our people would actually know this biblical record but they don't, and it's because the ecclesiastical leaders are not making the connection for us. But verses 20 to 23, uh, let's see, I read 20, uh, okay, here. Um, it shall come to pass in the day that the remnant of Israel and such as are escaped of the house of Jacob shall no more again stay upon him that smote them, but shall stay upon Yahweh, the Holy One of Israel in truth. The remnant shall return, even the remnant of Jacob, unto the mighty God. For though thy people Israel be as the sand of the sea, yet a remnant of them shall return. The consumption decreed shall overflow with righteousness. For Yahweh, the God of hosts, shall make a consumption even determined in the midst of all the land. So he's unequivocally declaring, in spite of the earned destruction there's going to be a remnant that's to be escaped and will trust yahweh their god and will not trust in assyria by league or with egypt but will rely on god 
And verse 22 was actually declared by Paul in his days at Romans 9, 27 and 8. And we spent a lot of time in Romans chapter 9 in the past fellowships. And the judgment of Isaiah says is actually going to overflow with righteousness. And isn't that something, you know? And that's what he does. Therefore, thus says Yahweh, God of hosts, O my people that dwells in Zion, be not afraid of the Assyrian. He shall smite thee with a rod and shall lift up his staff against thee after the manner of Egypt for yet a very little while. And the indignation shall cease and my anger in their destruction. And Yahweh of hosts shall stir up a scourge for him according to the slaughter of Midian at the rock of Oreb, and as his rod was upon the sea, so shall he lift it up after the manner of Egypt. Um, that's right there. You know, as I say, the the general intro, the, the scourge, that's Second Kings nineteen thirty five, straight up. Uh, you don't call one hundred eighty five thousand of your soldiers dying in a night a scourge. Uh, that'd make any uh, any uh, commander of an army go home quickly. <laughs> that, that has to be some kind of divine omen, if you will. So, and there's some things here that I wanted, I wound up spending a lot of time on this with what time I had this week. And it was a busy week for me and I didn't get to spend as much time as I wanted, but I got really stuck on verse 27. And it shall come to pass in that day that his burden shall be taken away from off thy shoulder and his yoke from off thy neck. And the yoke shall be destroyed because of the anointing. All right. And this word there, because of the anointing, was really bothering me. Because I remember some work that Pastor Peters had done regarding the anointing and the anointing oil. And I really wanted to key in on this and try to get a sense and an understanding. But the word anointing there is number 8081. It's simply Shema. And it means grease. It means fat, fatness. Um, figuratively, richness or prosperity. And so the best sense that I can get for this phrase is not because of God's anointing of Jacob Israel or even the spiritual or anointing of the future Messiah and the redemption of Israel that's going to be, you know, shared by the prophet right here at chapter 11, just a few verses away. But in the context here, it seems that the prophet's thought is on the scourge of verse 26. And the 185,000 slaughtered. And this slaughter is a healing for Judah from the burden of Assyria. It's also referred to as an unguent, U-N-G-U-N-T, or an unction. It's a spiritual fervor, and its expression is what is for the slaughter, I believe, that was to cause like the bursting of the yoke. Just the same way God lifted off the rod, lifted up the rod upon as Moses lifting up the rod upon the sea in Egypt, 
And likewise, he references the matter of Midian at the Rock of Oreb, Judges chapter 7, verse 25. And of course, the Egyptian or the uh, escape from Egypt there in Exodus 14. So in the context, I'm of the understanding that what this actually says, it shall come to pass in that day that his burden, whose burden? Assyria's burden is going to be taken away from off of thy shoulder. Whose shoulder? Judah and King Hezekiah's shoulder and his yoke from off thy neck. And that yoke shall be destroyed because of, because of, I'm going to give you the definition because of, um, oh, I flipped my page over, uh, the scourge, because of the scourge, because of that scourge of the 185,000 that were to be slaughtered. And that was a healing. See, the oil or the um, Sheman 8081 is oil, grease, fatness. Um, it can be used in the sense of healing and so forth. And so, as I say, I got to this understanding through Strong's and so forth of, of a word called unguent, U-N-G-U-N-T, and unction. And it's a spiritual fervor. And so essentially what he's saying, because of the spiritual fervor of what Yahweh was going to be doing, and that is a spiritual fervor, 185,000 slaughtered. So as I say, I spent a lot of time on that one silly verse and that word, the anointing, because I wanted to make sure I got it right. And I believe that I've got it right. And I hope that helps. And I know that, see, sometimes we look at these words, we read them, and we really don't know what it means. It shall come to pass in that day that his burden, you know, maybe we got that. His burden was going to be taken away. The yoke was going to be destroyed. But we didn't really understand what because of the anointing meant. And I believe that that is the actual answer it was the spiritual fervor of God's uh, divine justice and retribution in sparing Judah from its destruction by Assyria. Remember, Judah did not get destroyed by Assyria. Jerusalem was spared. It wasn't till the Babylonians. And the reason that happened is because Hezekiah, like a fool and dummy, opened up his treasuries and showed what he had. So anyhow, hopefully that is something that was worthwhile. He's come to Eath and he has passed to Migron. All of this from 28 basically to 32 um, is the, you know, the conquest account. And he's given a view to the advancement uh, and the paths of destruction that are also recorded on what I am understanding as the Kujunik cylinder, K-O-U-J-U-N-I-K cylinder. It may be a part of the Cyrus cylinder and was referred to for a time differently, but it references King of Judah joining with the King of Ashdod earlier 
And then Sargon calls himself the seduer of the lands of Judah. And many of those city locations are those that we see right here in 28 to 32. They are those city locations named in 1 Samuel and Joshua and Judges. Throughout those conquests, many fled to Jerusalem, in fact, as the fortress and safety. And yet Isaiah, by the conscience of God, is really about to reveal by what power Yahweh is will yet then and even more than a century later be staying his hand for a remnant to escape. And that's exactly what's in 28 through um, the end of the chapter 10. He's come to Ath, he's passed a migrant at Mikna, he's had laid up his carriages. So he put his carriages there for a period of time. They're gone over the passage. They've taken up their lodging at Geba Rama, is at Geba. Geba Rama is afraid. Gibeah of Saul is fled, telling who there's as as the king of Assyria is gone in. People have fled from these cities. Lift up your voice, O daughter of Galim, cause it to be heard unto Laish, O poor Anathoth. Uh, Madmanah is removed. The inhabitants of Gibbam gather themselves to flee. As yet he shall remain at Nob. That day he shall shake his hands against the mount of the daughter of Zion, the hill of Jerusalem, on the hill of Jerusalem. Behold, Yahweh, the Lord of hosts, shall lop the bow with terror, and the high ones of stature shall be hewn down, and the haughty shall be humbled, and he shall cut down the thickets of the forest with iron and Lebanon shall fall by a mighty one. And then right in the midst of this, Isaiah begins to prophesy about a future branch of Jesse. There shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse. A branch shall grow out of his roots. You know, that's something that a lot of people don't really know or recognize or realize is that you can cut a tree down and you can come back a year later or maybe even couple years later and you're going to see a branch from most trees coming up but one branch one tree that does not give a branch <clears throat> is the uh, cedar tree the cedar tree does not send forth a root does not send forth a branch off of a root but here he says, there shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse and a branch shall grow out of his roots and the spirit of Yahweh shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of Yahweh and shall make of him a quick understanding and the fear of Yahweh and he shall not judge after the sight of his eyes, neither reprove after the hearing of his ears. But with righteousness shall he judge the poor and reprove with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall smite the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips shall he slay the wicked. These verses right here are just the, the very essence of what Judah believed. And for the most part, Israel believed was that there was going to be this warrior king, this great king that was going to come and make all these things right. And what he's done is he's presented by I.
Isaiah, the contrast of the fall of Judah and Assyria, like the cutting down of a forest that we saw in chapter 10. And here the rod or the branch that grows out of the root, but a tree that's going to bring forth fruit. And fruit in all the essence here that 11, 1 to 4 is talking about. And in this, you have two things going on. Yahweh has cut down much of his forest, that is, of Judah and Israel. And he also took care to cut down the forest of Assyria. And just like a mighty oak, God is going to to bring forth a shoot from the root, from the stem of Jesse, like a branch, it's going to grow out of the roots and turn into a mighty, a mighty oak, if you will. Turn to Zechariah chapter six to get an S. Uh, hey, a little bit. Doug, of, do you have uh, oh, yeah. cross references on that? Like, I because I don't have a Bible. Like your your Bible does it have a cross reference? Like what other? Yeah. Cross for what is it? Yeah, for, for the for eleven the branch. for eleven. Yes. For the branch um, specifically. I was just going to go. Right. Zechariah 6. That's where we're going to go. Uh, and that Because what, what I was thinking was speaking to me is John 15. John 15, 1. On fifteen one, I'll pull that up too quick. On fifteen one, I am the true vine, and my father is the husbandman. That you're probably thinking of something else. Uh, uh, let me read you Zechariah real quick, and uh, uh, and yes, there are definitely New Testament. Um, But turn to Zechariah chapter 6, and I'm going to give you uh, another reference, John, for you might have been Matthew 11, 28 to 30. Somebody can pull that up. I've actually cross-referenced that scripture myself on, on Zechariah 6, 12, and 13. But here's what 12 and 13 of Zechariah says. Speak unto him, saying, thus speaks Yahweh of hosts, saying, behold, the man whose name is the branch and he shall grow up out of his place and he shall build the temple of Yahweh. Even he shall build the temple of Yahweh and he shall bear the glory and shall sit and rule upon his throne and he shall be a priest upon his throne and the council of peace shall be between them both. And then I reference, like I say, Matthew eleven twenty-eight to 30, and whether somebody else thinks it's a good cross-reference or not, I don't know. But for me, that's what I did. And I think I know why, because of um, Matthew uh, 20, no, Matthew eleven twenty-eight. I just wrote that next to Zechariah myself, and I uh, will share with you Matthew 11. Yeah. Come unto me, all you that labor are heavy laden. I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and lean 
and learn of me. I am meek and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest on your souls. Because this is what is talking about here. And the spirit of Yahweh shall rest upon his spirit of wisdom, understanding the spirit of counsel, might, the spirit of knowledge. He, but with righteousness shall he judge the poor, reprove with equity for the meek of the earth, and he shall smite the earth with a rod of his mouth. Now, as far as any other cross-references, John, in 11, 1 through 4, I'll give you a few others um, that I wrote down. One was Revelation 5, 5. And let me see if I have any other cross-reference notes um, in the margin. Um uh, Acts thirteen twenty three, um, and um, that might be a good one there. Um, I've got six different references. Acts thirteen twenty three, um. Jeremiah 23, 5, Matthew uh, 3, 16, John 1, 32. There you go, John. Perhaps it was John 1, 32 and 33. Let's flip back to John. John uh, 1, 32. Looking at that 13, 23, right? Yeah. There's one problem with that. The, yeah. the Savior isn't Jesus. If we go to Isaiah, uh, uh, we can go to 43, where it says Yahweh is the only Savior. And then if we go to Isaiah 41, verse 4, it says, I am the first and I am with the last. I am he, and there is no other besides me. And then that goes in reference to uh, Revelations 1, verse 8, where it has, if you have a red letter edition, it'll show you that it's Jesus speaking, but it references the same thing. And if you have uh, cross references in your Bible, it'll refer you back to Isaiah 41. All right, John, we've lost you again. John, I think one thing that you would do well to do, because in in the fellowships here, um, one thing I think that you could do is these, uh, that's why I have this as an open fellowship. It was where anybody can come if they'd like. And I guess since you, I think what you want to do is you want to bring everybody's mind to some understanding that Jesus is God. And I don't really think that anybody will dispute that with you. You're just caught on a moment that you want to really pound home. And I think it would do well for you to take that topic up and take that topic so that you don't have to keep trying to allude to that topic as you're going along and trying to re-emphasize a point that you want to make with reference to um, what it appears to me that you want people to understand that 
Jesus is not God or that God is not Jesus. And I've had some email exchange with you on that and tried to share with you some thoughts that will help get those juices flowing again for you as well. But I think it would be better served if you can actually take that as a topic and you're fully welcome, you know, to come with your topic on that. And uh, we, you know, we do a number of fellowships on it. If, if you want one fellowship, two fellowships, whatever it takes. And uh, we can interrupt this series on Isaiah um, at some point in which you might want to do that. But I think that would probably be a better way to do it um, and um, and not have to keep, you know, you know, trying to infuse that um, because I don't I don't really think there's a dispute. Uh, I think perhaps there's conflict with the way it's being expressed that others may object to and whether people object to it or not we want the biblical truth but i think it's best to vet that out and then you let the spirit move in those who have been edified by the lessons and then let the holy spirit direct and guide them into any further knowledge that they have or wish to share on the subject but I think it's a little bit, um, it, it takes away from you, you, the full emphasis that you probably would like to have. And maybe that would uh, be a better way to go about it. And as I say, I'm fully open to that if you want to do that at some point. So does that make sense? Yeah, but I mean, and that's not what I'm, I'm not trying to get that point. That's the point that's, up over and over like within the topic of the conversation um i mean that's the whole point of everything that's going on right now is yahweh wants us to return to him and we can't return to him if we're still worshiping false gods and false idols and if we're calling on the false idols then we're not worshiping him and that what the whole message is about return to me you know seek me worship me not sure. all these other you know bales and everything else and i mean that's the whole message over and over and over and over again in the books from the old to the new is return to me turn from your wicked ways return to my ways and i will heal you and i will bless your land and I mean, the only reason I really brought that up right now is like Isaiah 52 that went into what you were saying with the Assyrians and Egypt and things of that nature. And everything else was within the context of the, the conversation. I'm sure I just like to stress that because that is the most important thing is returning to Yahweh and giving him all his honor and glory. Um, because until we do that, we're going to stay in the woods and getting punished. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I, I clearly uh, understand it, clearly agree with it. Um, now, just for sake of time here, as we're approaching the top of the hour, let me uh, quick summarize. 
um, a few points here as we're in chapter 11 of Isaiah, specifically verses 1 to 4. Now, again, we could spend a couple of days, a couple of fellowships just on this chapter 11, but we actually did a lot of chapter 11 in the Revelation bird's eye view series that we did several months ago. We covered quite a bit of that and turn to Revelation 5, 5. This is just the confirmation that Christ has conveyed to, to John here at 5, 5. And one of the elders said unto me, weep not, behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the book and to loose the seven seals thereof. So this is that same branch that you know, Isaiah was prophesying about long before that prophesied branch had come. And here he puts it right in the middle here, or if you will, or just kind of interrupts his thoughts, if you will. And it, it, you know, you kind of are taken aback. Well, here we were discussing cutting down Assyria. We're cutting, you know, talking about, uh, you know, Assyria having taken Ephraim, Israel. And now all of a sudden we're talking about a remnant here growing up out of this shoot. And it seems rather disjointed, but the, the expressions, if you go now, in fact, that's all I thought I would do would be touch on the rest of chapter 11 and let everybody read it on their own. This is where you come to that scripture that I referenced. The wolf also shall dwell with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the kid. The calf and the young lion, the fatling together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall feed their young ones, shall lie down together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox. People are reading this and thinking this has not happened. And yet they're not understanding it as a figure of speech of what he just said right up here in 11, 1, 2, 3, and 4 about glorious days. And if you put these in references to peoples, uh, the animals in reference to peoples, then you can gather a better sense of how that operation, or rather how these these metaphors and figures of speech become more relative and more easily understood as to what it is that's being conveyed. So I didn't have a lot of time yet to spend on 11. And if we need to, as I look it over again um, this week, you know, maybe I'll go back and get into 11 here a little bit more. But when you get on to verse 10, then it says in that day, this root of Jesse, which shall stand for an ensign of the people, to it shall the nation sink. Our Bible has that word translated in the King James as Gentiles. It simply means the nations. And predominantly, if you go to Strong's on that word, as it references it out of, he will actually indicate predominantly Israelites. Is that is what is being referred to there. And his rest shall be glorious. This is what he's talking about, the rest that we're supposed to have. The prophet's message, if I could summarize something before the time gets away. The prophet's message is directed not just to his generation, 
but simultaneously is conveying and applying to events bringing the age or a period of time to a close. So Isaiah isn't chronologically connecting, if you will, or attaching this reference and the identity of this branch and this Messiah and these events with events current to Isaiah's day. But without question, all the prophets looked forward to a day when righteousness is established in the earth in such a way that it appears just exactly as this expression from six through nine is. And as it says, he goes right from those expressions in six to nine to 10. And in that day, there shall be a root of Jesse, which shall stand for an ensign. Well, my point being now is you reference this and you say, he just had all this figure of speech about wolf laying down with the lamb and all these seemingly marvelous things. But the segue right to 10 is that in that day, when this is going to occur, that you just got through hearing or reading from six through nine, in that day, is that root of Jesse going to stand for an ensign of the people? And it to it shall the nations of Israel seek, and his rest shall be glorious. And every time, as John says, every time we rest in his rest, it is as glorious as a wolf laying down with a lamb. It just honestly, if we could just grasp that concept. So they look forward to these days in the earth. And so a fundamental axiom of the prophet's disposition is really due to maladministration and certain failure of rulers and God's people's inability to properly exercise authority and dominion to the end that they would actually bring this peace and tranquility into their lands and amongst their citizenry. And I hope that at least we can gather that message out that we can take out there to the other people as well and say this is why these lessons are important for us because we're supposed to be having that dominion and taking that dominion. And when we stand resolutely on that dominion, there is not a hand of the wicked that will come against us because God is not going to allow the hand of wicked to go against the hand of his righteousness. As John has said, when we are in his righteous stead, and standing in his glory and upon his foundation. Do you think for a moment the wicked will have any hand over us? And the answer, of course, is no. And these are what these prophets are all lamenting, is the maladministration and the certain failure of the rulers. 
over and over and over and over again. So hopefully that's a little bit of more that we have to understand Isaiah 10 and the colloquialisms or the manners of speech, the phraseology, and a trip back in memory lane, back to Second Kings, when all this was happening. And now we get a better connection of what was going on and the need and the necessity. Remember, Judah is going to go into captivity and judgment. But this promise of 11, 1 to 4 is far future while it pertains to them in the present to give them that hope and understanding that in his righteousness, God justifies the judgment upon not only the wicked, but his, pe his people as well. And I connected those five verses, as I mentioned directly to Matthew in, in Zechariah, uh, to Matthew eleven twenty eight to 30. And probably the single most descriptive passage conveying the condition is recorded at Isaiah 59. When John referenced Isaiah 52, it brought to mind, um, I thought maybe that when he initially said that was what I had uh, had had pulled up myself in Isaiah 51 and 9. I want to quick read that. So hold with me just a couple minutes here. It's going to be quick. Uh, Isaiah 59 and 14. Um, oh, let me read 12 to 14. For our transgressions are multiplied before thee. Our sins testify against us, for our transgressions are with us. And as for our iniquities, we know them. In transgressing and lying against Yahweh and departing away from our God, speaking oppression and revolt, conceiving and uttering from the heart words of falsehood. And judgment is turned away backward and justice stands afar off for truth is fallen in the street and equity cannot enter. Yea, truth fails. He that departs from evil makes himself a prey. And Yahweh saw it, and it displeased him that there was no judgment. Um, Smith and Goodspeed has, and judgment is turned away backward, and justice stands afar off, for truth is fallen in the street, and equity can't enter. So the bird's eye view is this. This is God's mechanism. This is what he set up, that the, that the creation would come into its fullness. And when we refuse to use and exercise the judgment and the justice due, he will satisfy its necessity. And much of Jacob, Israel, and indeed Judah believed in and waited upon these words of this prophecy. Indeed, those next passages that I mentioned there from 6 to 9 exemplify the expectation. And so 
I hope that we can help to share that with people that they may more readily turn from their ways. Uh, some notes I had for verse four of 11, one through four, Revelation 19, 11, and uh, Revelation 1, 16, and 2, 16, and Revelation 19, 15. And again, needing then finding the necessity that we connect these Old Testament prophecies and so forth with that revelation, as well as the New Covenant uh, apostles' um, uh, gospel messages and gospel recordings. So, for what it's worth, I hope that is a little more edification. Uh, we're at the top of the hour. Anybody like to uh, have any special prayer or close in prayer? Um, I have some things that I want to bring that I've learned in Scripture this week. Again, a reminder. And that is Heavenly Father. The sins of a nation. This nation, our nation your people, this land that you gave us, defiled, we have made it. Father, we bring forth children that we might have them become your stewards of the next generation. And the wicked continue to despise you and turn our own children away and seek total annihilation of your people. And Father, we know that your judgment comes on both the wicked and those of your people. So once again, Father, forgive us. Have mercy upon us. Those of your people, a remnant, lead us, guide us, and direct us for that period of time and that age in which you rebuild with those who love you, trust in you, count on you, and reciprocate the love and the glory that is due you that we ourselves ask of our own families and children of our own contemporaries. So Father, we ask humbly that you heal our land from its unrighteousness and open the eyes of the people with a spiritual awakening. And Father, bless this wherever it may go, those that may hear it and share it. Bless them and be with them and strengthen them for the days to come as we look to your prophets as the conscience and the guide that you've given us of your will, your intentions, and your ultimate for your creation. Asking these things, trusting in it, counting on it. Amen. 